few reflections tonight, and then <clears throat> allow enough time for us to talk, talk it over. If any of you have any questions or responses or reactions to it. Very often for me, um, <clears throat> what to say in Dharma talks or what subject to talk about come out of meeting with people during the day. Sometimes themes that come up over and over again in individual interviews or as today in the two groups that we've had. I think what it has to do, I think the theme that is coming out of it is has to do with observation, the kind of attitude or the tone or a mode of observing <clears throat> that's distinctive for what we're trying to do here. And whatever label you put on it, Somehow it's a little off, including perhaps the one that I uh, feel close to tonight. What I uh, found myself reflecting on was the way in which we observe nature. and the possibility that there's some clues or similarities in the way in which we observe nature that can help us when we observe ourselves. The other day I was at Plum Island, which is a very beautiful bird sanctuary, not <clears throat> so far from Boston, Cambridge, and was watching birds, lots of them, different kinds, doing all kinds of things. I wasn't tampering with them in any way. I couldn't, even if I wanted to. And they were just living out their life the way they normally do. And I was pretty attentive. There was nothing else to do. It was very simple. There were virtually no people there. Just watching patterns of behaviors, flight patterns, the way they would walk, and you could see relationships and even parent-child things going on. I had no urge to change anything. And the tone of the observation, there was nothing instrumental in it. I was not, there was no goal. I wasn't trying, I wasn't going to get anything out of it. I wasn't going to engineer or shape those birds using my awareness or my observation. Nothing like that at all. It was just purely watching them and there was a certain friendliness to the watching. It was quite delightful. Even when there were fighting patterns going on. And there is a whole tradition of observing nature that perhaps many of you know about. 
Uh, it's in the sciences and it's a non-laboratory science. These are people who go out into the wild, people who have lived with gorillas, other animals, and have observed the animals in their natural habitat just doing what they do. It's lawful. They're that way. A particular group of animals are that way. And other animals are a different way. And these scientists are naturalists who don't use so much laboratory techniques they, as much as just patient, careful, non-intrusive observation for an extended period of time and then as best they can piece together a story of the life of the gorillas or whatever. And it could be with plant life in the, in the seas, in the ocean. And so there's quite a bit of it. My own work before getting involved in meditation was uh, in social psychology, but it was more like anthropology. And my interest was what was called field work and naturalistic observation. That is living with people, a kind of pompous term for living with people and trying to understand how they live. Not that different from communities of animals or birds, fish. The main thing was that it was a, a seeing of things as, as part of a natural order. That it was lawful. And that you intervened as little as possible. You intruded yourself as little as possible. And when you did, you tried to understand the impact that you have had. So I clearly have a bent in that direction, but that was all external. I've always enjoyed observing animals and people. It's the same, in a way. And it's only recently, really today, a lot, in a very big way, what I saw was all that I've done is switched from the outside to the inside. Not to exclude the outside, but uh, perhaps, and I hope this makes some sense, perhaps um, there are some hints here as to how we can observe our own life. So the naturalistic observation has a certain affection in it, a certain openness, an allowing quality, permitting whatever it is we're observing to unfold in its own way, to follow its own lawfulness, to run its own course, to do what it must do. And that kind of observation, the looking has a certain simplicity to it. It's not motivated in the sense of the looking will get you something. Because once you do that, you've changed it. It's no longer that kind of, it's not naturalistic observation anymore. You're ahead of yourself a little bit. You're looking in order to. And probably most of us have been brought up to do a lot of that. We usually look at things with a motive, profit of one kind or another. We've been doing it so much that it's hard for us to just look simply. I think perhaps it's one reason it can be such a relief to just see a sunset, a beautiful one, when we're just disarmed. We lose all of our tricks. They fall away. and We're just 
watching a simple natural phenomenon and the great joy is beyond words. And then, of course, the words jump in and then it's different once we do that. Start comparing the Barry sunsets with Acapulco sunsets. And anyway, what I heard in a lot of the uh, of our discussion today and and I've heard it recently a good deal in Cambridge and here at a different retreat is that very often we don't see ourselves as part of nature. It might even be that a lot of this ecological mess that we're in is because of that. We see ourselves as that which can conquer nature or as one laboratory, great laboratory scientist put it, torture the truth out of nature, the experimental method in science. But somehow nature is foreign or different and it's something that we use without too much consideration. And we're now starting to find out that that's not so. And all the ecological mindedness has to do with that. Is it any different when we take up Vipassana practice and begin to observe ourself? I think it is. I mean, we're... Our, our conditioning is so powerful, particularly in regard to ourselves, that it is different. And when things come up, when we see them, just the way they're presented this, this morning and this afternoon, and certainly often, I would say very often in interviews, we present ourselves in a problematic way. That is, I have this problem my mind was all full of jealousy. Or I just felt awful, a failure, I can't do this. And it's the person suffering. And it's presented as if there's a personal problem and that the person is defective in some way. And that we have to, as soon as possible, devise a strategy to correct this defect to rid ourselves of the problem. It's more that quality which comes up in very often, especially when things that trouble us enter into our meditation. And the looking is colored by that. The quality of observation is not the same quality of observation that perhaps we can have as we see birds flying in the sky. It's very clear they're not us. It's very clear that we can't intrude upon their lives. Fortunately, very often we don't want to. What a relief. But when it comes to us, I don't think we have quite that attitude. As I understand it, the frame of reference of Dharma is actually very similar, for all I know, identical with the naturalist's point of view. The things that come up in our mind that we call a problem, the mind and the body, feelings that we don't like, bodily states that we don't like, images and thoughts in the mind that we would rather, we'd rather they were, they were not there. 
we don't see them as part of nature. And I think the frame of reference of Dharma practice is to see it all in an integral way. There's just as you might observe a cloud formation or a flock of birds or just the ocean or your own mind. From the point of view of Dharma, it's the same. This is my understanding of it. It's all nature. Now, in, in our own uh, way of looking at things, we use the term nature mainly for things that are external to ourselves, that grow in the ground or animal life, etc. But the frame of reference of Dharma is all-inclusive. And I think one of the great advantages and beauties and power of it is that you can have the same reference, frame of reference for everything. If we really could have that, some of the ecological mess that we're in I don't think would be possible. There's too much of an understanding that there's really one process going on. And so, in our practice, and some of you who have been coming here for a while, no doubt have heard terms like this, when something comes up, for one person, very strong feelings of jealousy that were coming up a lot today and uh, tormenting, hard, difficult for the person, and presented as a personal problem. That is, I'm a very jealous person, and I've come to this retreat, and look what's happened. It's surfaced with this defect that I have, this incredible jealousy. From the point of view of Dharma, it's a somewhat different way of looking at it. Whatever comes up in mind or in body, all of it are considered conditions. So that jealousy that comes up in the mind is a changing condition. We don't own it. It comes and does its thing when it seems to want to. It's impermanent. We don't own it. And it runs its course. It unfolds according to its own lawfulness. Can you see the difference if we're able to observe jealousy in that way, just as we were able to observe a flock of birds or cloud formation? Or even to keep it going, if we found ourselves appalled by the strong jealousy that came up in the mind, to be able to see that too is natural, a natural reaction. To be able to watch the rising, say the peak, peaking, if that's a word, was that a place in China? <laughs> and then the falling away, or seeing these phenomena arise and pass away, following their own lawfulness and being as much a part of nature as anything else. In short, there's only one process going on. From the human point of view, from our point of view, and linking that up with Vipassana, there's a very simple formulation that can be helpful for all of us. It comes up in many ways in the teachings. 
And that is simply the content of our practice are these phenomena that arise and and the knowing of them. The natural world of which we are very much a part is experienced through doors. It's our link to what we call the world. So sounds come in through the ears, smells come in through the nose, and sights come in through the eyes, bodily sensations, thoughts. And in each case, there are those occurrences and the knowing of them. And that's it. That's the field of our, our study. That's, our, that's what we have. Do any of you have something outside of that? It'd be interesting if you do. And this is what is being taught, and it's for you to not to take it on or subscribe to it as a belief system, but to use it as a pointer to examine your own mind and body to see if it's true. We're taught that all of this, all of these uh, the phenomena that we come in contact with, are arising and passing away, dependent on conditions. They're not self. They're not I and mine. I and mine is something that is fabricated, created, and then added on to what's happening. So that when something is seen, if the I identifies with it, then you have that. But what's happening is the process of seeing and the process of a thought coming up and saying, it's me who's doing the seeing. In Cambridge, what I found, I found in interviews there, and I mean, it's all of us, including myself, is that people can be practicing for quite a long time and have what is called, in many senses, a strong practice. And time and time again, invariably, in fact, fairly often, when things don't go exactly as we want them to go, the mode of attention or the mode of seeing or characterizing what's happening to, happening to us is one really of a personal problem and a personal defect rather than nature, rather than a natural unfoldment. When these problems come, we can't seem to look at life that way. A few weeks ago, I had, it would be, I don't think I'll be able to convey this, but I'll try. Uh, in sitting, my own little practice somewhere, I think at home, suddenly there was a lot of biographical material coming through from years ago, and even fairly recently, sort of a, a story coming, my story coming through. And I was watching it and listening to it, quite interested, and suddenly I realized that I didn't have to take it personally. (laughs) And I know that may sound silly, but it was quite liberating. You could also take it personally. I'm not saying that would be a total distortion. You could characterize a person as having been a such and such and then done such and such and as a result become another such and such. 
and have an album with photographs that buttress this characterization, showing how one developed from X through Y through Z, of course, Z being far superior to X. And it would be coherent. You could write a short story, a story or a biography. and it would, I'm not saying there isn't some truth to that way of tying events together. But there's also another way of looking at it, and these were simply, simply photographs out of an archives. In fact, they weren't completely accurate because something happens, it seems, when the past surfaces. It seems to get colored by what is needed in the present. So I don't even think that many of the photographs were accurately what happened in the past, but they served nicely to help what was going on in the present or what the self was trying to convince itself of in the present. But simply seeing it as, well, I don't have to take this personally, it became quite interesting. I couldn't help but laugh. And it was very liberating to not have to be held accountable or to need to make coherent this set of fragments that were coming through the mind as being me and mine and how I used to be and how I was and how I am now and how I'm going to be. Sound familiar? I hope that simply talking about these things can, when we begin sitting again, perhaps even if just it's a little bit, help us let go of this powerful need to see ourselves as problematic, troubled, defective human beings wandering around the globe in terms of a fix, how to cure ourselves and become perfect. Rather, a a more expansive, open, I don't have words for it. I know that I was watching the birds. There was definitely friendliness there, at least. But I'm not saying that you have to love everything that's coming up in you. It's more a real openness to it. Perhaps to help us all do this, just a few hints on something that's involved in the process of doing this. Very simple, but perhaps if we um, sort it out, you can begin to see it in your own practice and that can help us move in this direction. If you want to move in this direction, some of you may not like what you're hearing. And I wonder how the people who are very new to this practice are hearing what I'm saying. This weird guy, he doesn't want to, want to have a personal biography. and He wants to look at himself as if he was a bird or a gorilla. In any case, whatever way in which you, in, in whatever way you, you come to observe the mental and physical events that are going to be with us for the next few days and longer. From the point of view of our practice, there are a few things that are necessary. One is we need to make an effort 
even watching the birds, it took an effort. I had to turn towards them. I had to keep my gaze in some way coordinated with where they were, or I wouldn't see them. That took effort. Now, it was a joyful effort. After a while, it was not so joyful as my neck started to hurt, etc. So that even there, there are limits. But it did take an effort, and the effort to turn towards whatever it is. And let's say in our case, if we could just use as an example, but I really mean it to apply to much more than the breath, that is everything. Let's limit it to the breath and even limit it to the nostrils, just so you get a more concrete feeling of what I'm trying to say. Step number one is simply turning to the nostrils. And at times when people begin, it can even be a problem, a question being not following the breath, but finding out if I even have nostrils. But let's say at a certain point you find that you are breathing and it's, you have the rough area where it's happening. And there's a turning towards it and a willingness to open to it, a willingness to uh, place contact, have mindfulness be placed in close contact with the process of breathing. That effort is needed, energy is needed to do that. Anything that gives us that energy and effort is going to help us in our practice. And there's so many things that contribute to it. On all levels, the degree of rest that we have, our diet, In short, the amount of energy that's available and an interest, a real interest in what's happening. This changes and for those of you who've been practicing for a while, uh, I don't know if you agree with this, I have a hunch you do. The effort grows or the willingness to really turn to the present, to what's happening, grows out of the practice itself. Encouragement by teachers and books can be a big help. But if you're largely dependent on externals, including having other yogis sitting with you, that kind of energy is not very reliable. It's too dependent on others. It's helpful, and I'm not saying throw it out. I'm saying use it. We're using it, all of us, right now. But it's extremely important for at some point to begin to taste the real fruit of the practice. To begin to see that there is genuine value in turning towards life in a very simple and direct way. That it's possible that awareness is the best friend we have. That it's really valuable. And we know it. As that begins to happen and perhaps intensify, we have more and more willingness to turn towards the present moment because we know what it's about. I have an example I don't want to forget to use because it's so trivial on yogurt. If I forget, will you bring me back to it? So we have to turn towards the object and then, as you know, is mindfulness. Let's say now we've Turn towards the breath. This capacity to discern 
the details of what breathing at the nose are. It's the mindfulness that begins to see what's happening, to penetrate into whatever it is that we've directed our attention towards. And if you're at the nostrils, at first you might say in an interview, if asked, what's happening? Well, you know, the breath is going in and the breath is going out. What do you mean? Anything else? Perhaps you pause, examine your breath. Yeah, I can see that the out-breath is longer than the in-breath. I didn't know that. That's true. I can also see that the left nostril, perhaps the air is flowing more freely than the right nostril. I can begin to feel where the air is touching the nasal passage just exactly where it touches it, and if that touch is pleasant, is it a very velvety, sweet kind of touch, or is it cutting and hurt? Is the breath fine or coarse? Beginning to see that. Beginning to see temperature. Perhaps the breath is a little bit warmer for having gone into the body, and as it comes out, it's warmer than the the breath that goes into the body. Starting to be able to see that we can discern the beginnings of an in-breath more clearly than the endings of an in-breath. Seeing that can help us with our practice in that we give a bit more attention to where our looking is not quite as developed or as sensitive. Noticing pauses between breath and so forth. And so the mindfulness begins to see the characteristics of breathing. It also begins to see a very important one, one that you all, or most of you, of course, have heard many times with profound implications, that each breath is impermanent. An in-breath begins and ends, an out-breath begins and ends, and as you get more closely into it, as the mindfulness becomes more mature, we can even see that an in-breath is made up of a lot of different kinds of energy. Same for an out-breath. Now, in order to do this, the mind has to stay with the object as well, the concentration. And so we have to turn to the object, we have to stay with it, and we have to begin to discern the qualities that make up this breath in this case. And I think we've been, it's been going for about a day. We started last night. And now more and more, I would encourage you in your looking at the breath, wherever you're following the breath, or anything else, to bring a little bit of care in there, to investigate. To be a little bit keen in your interest. And what, what is this? If it were to put, be put into a question, what is this? But it's not thinking that I'm talking about. It's just very careful attention, very subtle, picking up nuances, not just following in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath. It becomes much more refined than that. Okay, if you can bring it together, whatever it is that's happening to us, can we turn towards it? Can we uh, stay with it and remain alert and sensitive and in a, in a way that allows 
the phenomena to remain what it is. Something that's empty of self, again, not to be taken on as a belief, but to be seen. Something that's a changing condition, that doesn't belong to us, that must run its own course and does according to its own lawfulness, which can be experienced and let go of very peacefully. The yogurt example. This actually happened to someone in Cambridge and I think it's such a good little teaching that I hope it can uh, not only illustrate what we've been talking about but provide some hints as to how to strengthen all of these factors, particularly effort, actually all of it. And I'm bringing up an example that doesn't have to do with sitting intentionally because what I'd like to suggest is that you, between now and tomorrow evening, uh, you begin to, in your own way, observe what I'm about to describe in different forms. It probably won't have to do with yogurt. So that you become uh, more knowledgeable in a first-hand way about this phenomena that's to be described if you see it, if, it's, if it turns out to be that relevant. A person goes into a large health food store, supermarket health food store in Cambridge, and goes to the counter where they usually get their favorite brand of yogurt. Mind you, this was reported to me not as some disaster, but just as a small case of suffering. And that's why I think it's so beautiful, because it's trivial. Not trivial, but small. The person goes to the the dairy department, starts to reach for their favorite brand of yogurt and only finds out that it's not there. And the clerk says, well, we're out of them. We'll have them in in two or three days. And the person, as described, in moving towards that compartment was in a very happy state, cheerful. (laughs) Enjoying life. And suddenly all that's happened is a cardboard container with a white milk-like substance and a particular brand name with a cow on it. (laughs) Not to plug any particular brand. Is not there. And the person's... uh, That that consciousness falls away. And instead there's a small bit of suffering. It's not, not terrible. But there's a drop in consciousness for 10 seconds or so. The person is then walking away and... As I remember, the kinds of things the mind was doing is uh, taking it personally. (laughs) It's my brand of yogurt, and why don't they have it? I'm a good customer here. Now, this is a very intelligent person, by the way. So it could happen to any of us. And at that moment, the person woke up and turned towards that suffering, a little piece of suffering, small suffering, And just watched it. 
right in the supermarket. You don't have to go into full lotus or get, or get a cushion. <laughs> and could see what had happened, could see the whole thing of a moment of a moment suffering, allowing that to happen, but now meeting it with attention and as in the light of awareness, it simply got burnt up, not as an act of violence or will, but these many of these forms of suffering are so flimsy, have so little real basis to them, that when they are put in the light, they don't stand up. The awareness just burns through it or dissolves it or whatever you want to say, followed by a moment of release and relief, or is of a very good feeling. Not about the yoga, but about the fact that now there was no holding on or clinging to something that wasn't there and suffering. And seeing that in effect what had happened, because if it were just a straight natural, it is possible to go in to not find the yogurt and for it to be all right. Or this way is also good. What happens is you go in, there's no yogurt. You can't control the mind. It's sort of like a secretion, like digestive juices or whatever. The mind decides that it's going to be unhappy. Fine. That's, that's also part of nature. All of it is. And so is the capacity to see it part of nature. This kind of observation. And what you can see is in this case is that the person used the mind used yogurt to bite itself. I mean, it really made the whole problem, literally. It, is, it doesn't follow that one has to suffer if their brand of yogurt's not there. It may, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so the mind bit itself or stung itself, whatever language you want to use, and it dressed itself up as yogurt, disguised itself as yogurt, and so it could almost get away with it. But as we come to know the mind, we can see that we make yogurt, we make brown cow or black cow, whatever it is. We also make not having it. We make, this is my brand. Why don't they have it? I'm a patron of this store. And so the whole fabrication is put together by the mind. And if it's put together by the mind, it can be disassembled. And it falls apart of itself when the awareness is clear enough. Two points I'd like to emphasize about this little, it's a small suffering and a small liberation. One, and this is in terms of encouraging us to carry out this kind of natural observation with whatever turns up for us. One is when we find ourselves attached, grasping, holding on and suffering, I think it's very important to see that and to feel what that feels like. For the mind to grasp that, oh, I see what happens. When I claim this as I and mine, as something, some personal tragedy, something personally directed at me, it feels this way. It hurts. To not be in a hurry to let go, in other words, as if we could. But to, there's great value in understanding what attachment feels like. You'll see why in a moment. 
so that we see that when I do this, it hurts. And this is, the connection is formed in the mind of that hurt and that event, why they came together, the cause. And then there's awareness, and in the awareness there's a seeing through of this I and mine, this grasping on. There's a seeing through and a letting go of it, and then there's a moments of release, of relief. Suddenly, it's like a, a breeze of fresh air comes in. And it's very important to experience that too. It's very important to experience what that relief feels like. Because the mind can begin to put those together. I get it. When I grasp onto something and try to hold it in a world that's out of my control to largely and impermanent, it hurts. The clinging can lead to suffering. And when I let go of it, I feel good again. I get it. Maybe it's better to just let go. To not grasp onto things, hold them, push them away, try to get, push them, uh, make them go faster than they want to go, or hold things longer than they want to be there, whether they're people or yogurts or whatever, or ideas. And so if the mind can make that connection, it can begin to see why letting go is emphasized in this practice so much, but not because some authority said so, a teacher or a book or a friend, but because you dug it out of your own mind and body as a natural process. It's a law, and you see that law at work, and you've absorbed it. You've you've absorbed the factual quality of that law and it's now beginning to be your own rather than subscribing to a belief and trying to be a good yogi and do what the books say or the teachers say. You now more and more live that way because it comes out of you rather than from the outside in. It becomes easier to let go. We begin to have faith and understand that letting go is helpful for us. And the letting go happens as a result, as an outcome of intelligence, by observing the natural order of things. Any questions or comments? Anything about your own practice that might relate to what's been said? When that person went to the store and couldn't find the yoga that they wanted, and you said they, for like about 10 seconds or so, they kind of let their tapes go off, you know, the mind let So, um, what I'm looking at is like when you realize that the mind is off stinging itself, um, there's like two ways I see of looking at it, and that is letting the tapes kind of fly for a while, or trying to like cut down the length of the tape by employing, mm-hmm. let's say, your breath, or feeling what's going on in your body, kind of like not letting the tape go off as I don't know which one is more appropriate, you know. Um, Did, like, mm-hmm. for me, if I let the tape go 10 seconds, then it'll go 20 seconds. You know, like, I need to kind of break in with my breath or something. Break in with your breath. Okay, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I cut in with the chatter, but bring myself back to the body, you know, the moment or something. So I'm just wondering, which is, maybe it's better to just let the whole tape kind of run its course, you know? Why would it be better? See, it might, but... I would say that it might be better if, particularly if the attitude is one of learning, 
See, if you, if you saw the mind doing this around the yogurt, and there was real inquiry going on, and you could see, look at that. Look at how the mind is putting together suffering, taking this little carton of yogurt to do it. If you could do that. But of course, then you're already pretty free to begin with. Already. Now, the, the breath, as you use it, is an expedient and useful uh, device. What you have to be careful about is suppression, pushing things away. But that's, I think that's helpful. What you say is helpful. I think many of us do that. But would you learn about the nature of attachment that way? As much? You, you know, I think the question will be answered pragmatically rather than us banding about this stuff. Uh, when the concentration gets strong enough and steady enough and there's confidence, more confidence, uh, I think one uses any external device less and less, uses techniques less and less, including no techniques. Until that day, all kinds of expedient means are helpful and useful and probably should be used. So it's a practical determination which you can answer best of all. Me too. Um, One of the things that I have trouble with is um, interfacing what I learn here in books that I read with a a whole, I guess you call it conditioning or a whole other kind of philosophy. One of the things that keeps running through my head when you talk about not taking it personally or not being attached. For our feelings? Yeah. This is. In other words, you have to really feel your feelings to do this properly. See, letting go is not pushing away. Letting go often is synonymous with letting be. To fully let a feeling be a feeling and to run its course. And then it's, you've let go of it. That's, that's one of its, the main uses of it. Um, from that point of view, you're, it's a tremendous, it's emphasized in Vipassana practice. One very important part of the practice is knowing feelings as feelings. Knowing a feeling is a feeling. But part of the training is definitely to not get caught in the feeling, to not identify with the feeling. Whereas I am jealous. This is my jealousy. Now maybe it's that part that you don't you're not comfortable with. Does that make any sense? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll wait till it does and then you can. Um, the art of doing what I've just suggested is not something that comes overnight. It's a lifetime effort. Lifetime's effort. It's not a three-month course effort or a weekend. I think for most of us, or perhaps all of us, it's an ongoing way of learning about what attachment is, learning about what letting go is, and more and more being attracted to traveling light. Again, the traveling light is not the number of objects, but how we relate to the objects. It's not saying don't have feelings. It's how we relate to the feelings. It's not saying to not be loving 
or even to have, uh, it's not saying just have a loincloth and give away your home and your bank account. Uh, you can be just as unfree with no possessions. You can get attached to not having any possessions. It can be very fierce. There are a number of very famous Zen koans which deal with that. Where the person thinks, well, yes, I've dropped everything. And then the teacher will say, drop that too. And he says, well, what do you mean? I have dropped. He says, well, if you insist, then carry it around. So it's not easy to, to learn how to do. Our natural bent is to, is to grasp onto and to push away and to take it as being I and mine. I'll tell you, if, if the time, if you cycle into the agreeing part, let me know. I could use a little right now. Especially after you heard this talk, right? <laughs> no, I like the Oh. <laughs> um, so I, I, have, I have difficulty um, knowing how much to, to, to feel the anger and when to try and let it go. Um, how to look at it. How, should I, I shouldn't feel that it's mine. It's, it's all very new to me. Yeah. It's not that you shouldn't feel it, because that would be trying to impose something on it. It's really seeing it. Now, to begin with, you might take on, it's a teaching, and that's often how teachings work. First, it's theoretical and provisional, and then, little by little, we make it our own as we, as we really see, if it is a good teaching for us, we really see that it's true. Anger is a difficult one because uh, Buddhists are really down on anger. There's just not much room for anger. Uh, and the New Age just loves having all kinds of techniques and therapies to get anger out. Again, personally, what I've found is I've, I've been forced for myself and for people I work with to be pragmatic about it. And there are sometimes people have so much anger or it's been kept and repressed for so long uh, or it is repressed that it's necessary for certain kinds of expressive therapies to use them. And then at a certain point you can bring a more contemplative approach into play. But clearly one thing that probably does make sense, whether you're Buddhist or not Buddhist, is if you're directing the anger a lot, you're going to cause a lot of suffering for yourself and others. Now, the teaching itself, whether you have a hard time doing it or not, is neither repressing the anger nor getting lost in it. It's sort of slipping in between those extremes. It's very delicate, like a brain operation sometimes. You know, just going right in there and fully feeling the anger, but not smashing someone over the head or pressing it down or or pretending that it's not there. So it's a, it's, it takes training. Now we're learn that's what our training is. We're learning that on at the beginning. One of the beauties of the breath is that it's it's not so problematic. Every now and then, somebody, it is for someone. Perhaps you have asthma or something. But for most of us, it's a rather neutral, pleasant event as the breathing goes. So we're, we're learning how to be with things and we're learning how to be with unpleasantness. And, so, and it's, at the beginning, most people can't really observe anger and fear too well. We get lost in it or sadness, a lot of strong states like that. But as I say, as the practice gets matures, more and more we're able to observe it in a naturalistic way. 
Whereas anger is part of the universe. There's no question about it. It's a real energy. And it's as real as a thunderstorm or an earthquake. So that even here, that, that kind of an attitude might help you work with it. Somebody's hurt you a lot, you're angry. It's natural. And the appropriate times to express anger, say you say someone's hurt you a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a way of expressing anger, isn't there? Yes, it would be nice, but unfortunately when we get angry, we usually don't have the kind of judgment that an Well, again, I would say probably what is most important is how conscious you are when you're doing it. Um, I think it is possible, I know it's possible, that more and more, and this is not unique to Vipassana, many people who have been in therapy obviously have improved their ability to do this. The more you are genuinely in touch with your anger, that is, are taking responsibility for it, you fully experience how angry you are, and you learn how to, to do that you're more able to talk to the person who perhaps is involved in it, to let them know without uh, bashing them first, either verbally or otherwise. It's a difficult one to work with and um, there's no one solution there. Particular contemplations that can help, like metta, or sometimes reflecting. I personally have found reflections very helpful. Reflecting on the futility of, let's say, violence and aggression. What do you really accomplish? It may be a momentary catharsis. And usually, what's left is just horrible, what you do to other people, and then they have to get back at you, and you have to, you know, it goes on and on. You know, it's called a world. Time for one more, please, yeah? Go ahead, it's all right. of things that came up to my mind when I heard you talking. One is that um, <laughs> it's amazing how when when I when a person just starts to allow these emotions that we've been pushing away all our lives to be there, um, it gets easier and easier to deal with them, to be with them. I mean, I pushed them away for so long that it was like a volcano when they came out, and I felt. Um, totally in chaos for a few years while things leveled out, but being courageous in the beginning and just owning them and letting them be there um, was the first really big step. And then after a while, now it's just flushing out. During that phase, uh, you weren't doing much of a pasana, right? During the the volcanic phase? Right, but other other. I was a lot more. I was doing it really erratically, and now I'm sitting regularly, and there's therapy. Yeah, what I'm getting at were other therapeutic modes more helpful at that time. Um, yes, because I was so terrified. I was so terrified yeah. at the power of my rage and also at the intensity of my fear that um, I just felt like I was drowning in both of those feelings, and that I needed help from people to 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 get to dare to. But there was something. Oh, this may sound a little contradictory, but um, in dealing with my rage, what I've found is that 
when I'm being, and it's been really working for me, um, to learn how to express anger in a way that's not venting it at someone, I've found that if, that if I can express my anger with kindness, which means that I'm being kind to myself and also to the other person, like there's something that expressing it is really going to be contributing something positive, then I allow myself to express it. And if I feel like where it's really coming from is just wanting to wound the other person, then I don't let it out and I be with it. And I've found that to be really helpful. It takes a lot of discipline. <laughs> has the pasna helped you? It's really been changing since I've, um, you know, I'm just not creating really angry situations and the way I used to. Is this practice uh, helping you now? Oh, completely. Can you spell that out? Because that might help people regarding anger. Don't worry about time. We'll just walk a little less. That's all. Well, a, a way that is tremendously helping me is just helping me even know what my feelings are. I think one of my big difficulties for a long time was that strong feelings would come up and I wasn't even able to um, identify this is anger, this, mm-hmm. is, this is suffering, this is sadness. It was just this wave of yuck that just felt like it was going to pummel me down. So I think my practice is just helping me um, identify it and feel it and see the transitoriness of it. Good. Um, I think we should do some walking now. Could I make a suggestion, one thing to add to the practice between now and tomorrow evening, or nothing special necessarily about tomorrow evening, perhaps we'll go into it, is in addition to your sitting practice, now notice these small sufferings and perhaps if you are alert enough, the small releases that are possible. Uh, A common one here, maybe you have to be here a little longer, is you kind of, stake out your particular seat in the dining room. You know, and then you come with your tray and, and suddenly someone else is sitting in your, in your chair. And it might be just 10 seconds. And again, it's, it's small. But the yogurt, uh, what that taught me is those little things make up a lot of our day sometimes. Little small buses that don't come on time or leave too quickly or, you know, all these slight misses and you know, um, see if you can pick up on that. It's n- nothing special. Just live, out, live your life here the way you're doing it. Sit and walk and so forth. But see if some sensitivity can be brought into uh, this is what I would call wisdom in action. Seeing the ways of the mind in action as you do whatever it is you do and if any of this comes up. Particularly having to do with eye and mind. And maybe we can talk about it tomorrow night. I'll say a few more things and then we can... If you do it, it'll be more interesting. Or as if you have some experiences <coughs> between now and tomorrow night, then it'll be more alive because you will see some of this in your own life rather than it just being, you know, a talk laid on top of you. Okay, why don't we do some walking, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.